may exist a very real supernatural world and you know we may be drawn to it because we're meant to be a part of it maybe Triggered. Who needs you to Somebody's with her. That's what you say in the book. So, are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to Christ on earth? Um, intellectual universalism is dangerous. Thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay. But functional universalism is worse. Living like in the end everyone is going to be okay. Heaven or hell on earth, no matter what religion you are, like accept pe other people's idea, okay? Because have you ever been to heaven? Have you ever seen it? Like, it's just not my beliefs that, you know, a, a just God will make you burn for eternity for something for free will that he gave you. Your answer then, succinctly, is I have no idea. Pretty much. You won't know until you die, will you? Okay, this is the question for you. <laughs> what do you think happens when we die? I read a sobering paragraph this week that I wanted to share with you as I begin this morning. It's in a book by a man named Randy Alcorn, and here's the paragraph. As human beings, we have a terminal disease called mortality. The current death rate is 100%. Unless Christ returns soon, we're all going to die. We don't like to think about death, yet worldwide, three people die every second. 180 every minute and nearly 11,000 every hour. If the Bible is right about what happens to us after death, it means that more than 250,000 people every day go to either heaven or hell. We are currently in a series at Hope that we've simply entitled, The Unknown. We've taken the month of September and it's been our goal to try to wrestle with some of life's difficult questions, questions that are in that realm of what many would call the unknown, things that deal with the supernatural or life after death. And so far in this series, week one, we looked at the question, do angels and demons really exist? Last weekend, we explored the question, what is heaven going to be like? If you were not here either of those two weekends, you can go online and you can catch up because we have posted those sermons and messages there online where you can for free kind of catch up with what we've been uh, uncovering as we've looked at God's Word together. This weekend... We come to the third question that we're going to be dealing with in this series, and it is simply stated, is hell a real place? Is hell a real place? We have been seeking through this series to look at what <coughs> the Bible 
has to say about these particular questions. And I understand that, that when you are speaking to a congregation like this, I know that the spectrum is broad over which I'm speaking to today. There are some of you who are here, and you're here because you love Jesus, and you've given your life to Jesus, and it is your desire to honor Him, and you're here to grow in your faith and to be encouraged in your faith, and you're here to dig a deeper foundation for your faith from God's Word. There are some of you who are here who are not Christians, you're not a believer, but you're here because you're genuinely asking the question. You're, you're what they would call maybe a seeker. You're somebody who's trying to figure this whole thing out and, and discern, is Jesus really what I need? Is Christianity the path for me? And then I know that there are also some of you here today who are here by obligation. Either a friend or family member has invited you and to get them off of your back or to appease them for the week. You're here. You could really care less about Christianity or the Bible. And, and, and I want you to know I completely respect and understand that, that you're a part of the spectrum of who I'm speaking to today. I know the spectrum is broad. All over that spectrum you'll find people here this morning. But before I begin to unpack what I want to share with you today, I want to speak to that third group of people for just a moment. That group of people that you're here today and you don't really acknowledge the Bible, you think it's more myth and fairy tale, and I'd love to have that conversation with you sometime, by the way, but for this morning, we're not going to deal with that. You're somebody who would say the Bible's a myth, it's a fairy tale, it contains stories, and you're just here out of a sense of trying to do something for somebody else. I want to talk to you for just a minute. I want to say a couple things to you before we start. Number one, I want to say thank you for being here. We're honored today that you would come and be a part of our service. We are blessed by your presence, and we want you to know that. I want you to know I respect you and am grateful that you're here. The second thing I would say to you is this. Much of what I'm going to say today is not designed to try to somehow intellectually change your mind about your views about the subject of hell. Hell, (laughs) according to the Bible, we're going to talk about. But I'm using the Bible as the source and the resource from which we're drawing our truth today. And if you discount the Bible, I'm not trying to somehow intellectually uh, get into a, a rational argument to try to convince you of its reality. But here's what I would ask you to consider today just to try to have as open a mind as you can have and and think about this. If you're right, if you're right and the Bible is a myth and a fairy tale and it's just a collection of ancient stories, if you're right, I want to tell you something about me today. If you're right, I still haven't lost anything. If you're right, listen, I've got a beautiful wife sitting over here. I've got kids. I have great friends in this fellowship. I enjoy the experience that we have here every week. If you're right, I don't feel like I've lost anything. But but what I want you to consider today is the possibility that the Bible is right. The Bible, which is a book that historically has stood the test of scholarly criticism for centuries, If the Bible is right, what Randy Alcorn is saying about the Bible is you stand today 
to lose everything. If the Bible's right, you stand to lose everything. So with that, I want you to take your Bible and open it to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16, and I want to read a passage of Scripture that is a story that Jesus is telling here in Luke 16. Now, some people say this story is just a parable. Some say it's a literal story. It really doesn't matter because Jesus is using the story to communicate some truth for us. I personally believe it's a literal story because if it is a parable, it's the only parable in all the New Testament where Jesus calls somebody by a specific literal name. So I tend to think it's a literal story, but it really doesn't matter. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, here's what it says. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. It's an Old Testament symbolic picture of heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets speaking about the word of God. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. What I am going to attempt to share with you this morning comes as a result of one of the most difficult weeks of study I've ever experienced in almost 25 years of preaching and teaching. Really, the weeks leading up to this and beginning to read about this subject, and this week as I've dug in for hours and hours reading books and theological works and portions and passages of Scripture that relate to this subject, i got to be completely honest with you. This week, my heart has been broken. Before I unpack some truths for you about hell, I want to tell you two things that God stirred in my heart that I've been praying for you this week. First of all, if you're here and you are a believer, 
You're somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. God, God burned a question into my conscience. I'm not putting the question on the screen, but you may want to write this question down. How can we know what we know and live as though we don't? How can we know what we know and live as though we don't? So often as Christians, <laughs> we begin to live a life of comfort or complacency or even apathy to some of the reality of the truths of Scripture. And my prayer has been this week that the reality of hell would inspire in us more than ever a passion to pray for and reach out to the souls of those who don't know Jesus. How can we know what we know and live like we don't? But secondly, for unbelievers, for those of you who've not yet come to know Christ, my prayer this week has been that the reality of hell would overwhelm you with God's gracious provision in Christ so that you do not have to go there. So I wanted to share that with you to give you some context from which I'm speaking today because I understand the subject matter of today is, is heavy. It's been a heavy week for me as I've studied and prayed through this. But I read a quote that I want to share with you to give you some context just from my heart. Sinclair Ferguson said this. Look at it on the screen. Pastors are teachers. And one of the virtues of a teaching ministry of any systematic kind is that whatever our distinctive personalities and spiritual burdens, we can avoid no biblical subject. Here's what that means. If I try to avoid the subject of hell... I would have absolutely no integrity before you as a preacher of the gospel. We live in a culture today where people don't like to talk about things that make people uncomfortable. Even the church has tried to remove from much of its communication some of the difficult things of Scripture. Here's what I want you to understand. As a preacher of the gospel, we are not afforded that opportunity. If we are going to stand before you week in and week out with an ounce of integrity, we must proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. So with that, I'm going to ask you for a favor before I unpack this. Here's what I'm asking you today. Hear me out. Don't only listen to part of it and say, can't handle this, I don't believe this. Hear me out to the end, all right? And reserve judgment until the end. But I want to unpack for you this morning four things we know about hell. And we've said with this series that it's what we know that gives us an unshakable foundation in the midst of some uncertainty and things we don't know. So this is a foundation that God gives us. Here's the first thing we know. Number one, we know hell is real. We know it's real. 
Some today would like to do away with the reality of hell on the basis that it is largely the creation of the church through the years. That the church has come up with this doctrine to somehow coerce people into following certain rules and practices. Many would like to discount the biblical doctrine of hell as a man-made doctrine that is solely used to manipulate people. And, and, And before I leave that, let me say this. I understand. I understand that the church in its history at times and in seasons has taken the doctrine of hell and used it manipulatively. They've used it to coerce. They've used it out of context. But listen to me. Just because the truth has been abused, it makes it no less the truth. Hell is real. Let me give you two problems that you encounter in trying to logically explain away hell as just a creation of the church. Here's here's problem number one with that. Jesus believed in hell and taught that it was real. I want to say that again. Jesus believed in hell and taught that it was real. What I just read for you in the Gospel of Luke, this graphic description of this place of torment was not Luke's writings about Jesus. It was Luke giving us what Jesus said on that particular day. And as a matter of fact, Billy Graham tells us that Jesus said more about hell's reality than any other person in the Bible. Think about that. Jesus taught us more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Mark Driscoll said of the teachings of Jesus that 13% of his sayings are about hell and judgment. Now, here's what that means. One out of every seven times Jesus speaks in the New Testament, one out of every seven Jesus is talking about hell and judgment. When you go to his parables... We understand that more than 50% of the parables of Jesus relate to the eternal judgment of sinners. Here's the conclusion. Look at this quote on the screen by Robert Yarborough. What Christians have believed about hell has been constructed almost entirely out of what Jesus teaches in the Gospels. If the historic doctrine of hell is to be set aside, it is most of all Jesus' teachings that must be neutralized. Here's what he's saying. If I'm going to discount hell, if I'm going to say hell is a myth and a fairy tale created by the church, what he's saying is then I've got to discount and devalue much of what Jesus said because Jesus is the one who taught us almost everything we know about hell. If hell is not real, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And if I can't believe all of what Jesus said, I can't believe any of what Jesus said. Because you see, if I only pick and choose certain things Jesus said and believe those, here's what I'm doing. I'm not putting my faith in Jesus. I'm putting my faith in me and my ability to determine what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. There is no politically correct 
version of Jesus. It is all or nothing. The reason we cannot discount hell as a man-made doctrine is because Jesus taught it more than anybody and believed it. The second reason, the second problem with that theory is that every New Testament author believed it and taught it. Look at this quote by Christopher Morgan. Chris Morgan is a good friend of mine. He was a, a, we were in seminary together. He went on, got his Ph.D., and now he is the dean of the School of Christian Studies at Cal Baptist University. He recently published a book that he edited called Hell Under Fire. It's a scholarly work written by many different theologians. Listen to what he said. The future punishment of the wicked in hell is woven into the whole fabric of the New Testament teaching. In fact... Future punishment is addressed in some way by every New Testament author. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and even the unknown author of Hebrews all mention it in their writings. That could not be said of many important biblical truths. How many of you believe in spiritual gifts? Let me see your hand. Most Christians know the term spiritual gifts. We believe in spiritual gifts by spiritual gifts. We may differ on our beliefs, but by spiritual gifts, we mean that God's Spirit has supernaturally, when you become a Christian, grace gifted you to carry out a part and function in the body of Christ beyond just human ability. Spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know that spiritual gifts are not taught by every author in the New Testament? They're not. So there's some important biblical stuff that we hold dear that is not taught by every author. And yet the Bible, every author in the New Testament teaches us the reality of hell. As believers who stand on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, belief in hell is not an option. We don't have an option. We know hell is real. Number two. We know hell is horrible. If all we had was what I've read for you this morning out of Luke 16, if that's the only thing Jesus ever said about hell, we could come to the conclusion it's horrible. But that's not all he said, and that's not all the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament does not give us a full <coughs> description of hell. But what the New Testament does do is paint a picture of what hell is like. Hell can really be summarized with three different images, and they really are all captured in one place in the Bible, and I want to show it to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. Look at it on the screen. Paul writes and he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Doing what? Listen. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God 
and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The word obey there is a word that literally means to hear and submit to. It's often translated in the New Testament with the word believe. He says here he's dealing out retribution to those who don't know God and to those who've not obeyed or believed in the gospel of Jesus. Then he says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and then this phrase is horrific. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So what I want to do is give you these three broad images of hell to help you understand why it's a horrible place. Number one, hell is a place of punishment. It's a place of punishment. He says here in 2 Thessalonians that he comes to deal retribution. The word retribution is a word that means the execution of justice. It's a word that indicates a full and complete punishment for sin. Christopher Morgan again said this about this idea of punishment. He said, most fundamentally, hell is correctly understood as God's just punishment on sin. Those in hell will feel the full force of God's fury and wrath. Now some here immediately begin to come with the how can a loving God. Listen, God is love. But God is also holy and just. And God's justice and God's holiness and God's love never contradict one another. God's holiness and God's justice and God's love give us a complete picture of who He is. The Bible teaches us that hell is a place of punishment against sin. I want to read for you some of the words of Jesus. Now, I want to say that again before I read it. What I'm reading you are the words Jesus used. People like to put Jesus over here in a category and say, oh, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church and what it teaches. Listen, I'm not reading you what the church said. I'm reading you what Jesus said. Look at it on the screen. Mark 9, 48. Hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. Luke 16, 24. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now the next one I want to read for you, Jesus repeats this next phrase six different times in the Gospels. Here's what he said. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus describes a picture of horrific suffering for sin. Mark Driscoll said, those in hell 
will be thrown into the fiery furnace and will experience unimaginable sorrow, regret, remorse, and pain. It's a place of punishment. Secondly, hell is a place of destruction. It's a place of destruction. Did you hear what (coughs) Paul said? He said eternal destruction. Though these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. The word destruction is a word that means ruin or wasted. It can mean death. And here the Bible is talking about the, the result, the spiritual result of spiritual death because of sin. Destruction, and as it refers to hell, is a graphic picture that those in hell have failed to embrace the meaning of life. And for eternity, life is wasted. It's wasted. How many of you have heard John 3.16 before? Let me see your hand. We love John 3.16. Let's look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not, say the word, perish. The word perish here is a word that is translated over and over and over again in the New Testament with the word destruction or be destroyed. It's a Greek word that speaks to this idea that hell is not just a place of punishment. It's a place of everlasting destruction and waste and loss. It's the idea of being lost forever. Third thing that makes hell a horrible place, and I think (coughs) this is what makes it hell. It's not just a place of punishment and a place of destruction. Hell is a place of separation. He said these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, and then he adds this phrase, away from the presence of the Lord. The word away here is a word that indicates the separation or removal of one thing from another. It means to be separated, to be banished is probably an even better word. To be banished from the presence of God. What makes hell, hell is the absence of the presence of God. Now, somebody might might say, well, pastor, I'm not a Christian now. I don't have a relationship with God now and my life is not terrible? What's any different than not having a relationship with God in eternity? Well, there's a big difference. You see, the gospel of Matthew says that now he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, that he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, now unbelievers and believers enjoy the blessing of God's presence. God is the one sustaining the universe. God is the one who holds everything together. God is the reason that we have life and breath and sun today. God's presence is the one sustaining all of that according to Colossians chapter 1. He's the one holding it all together. But in hell, God's presence is removed and people are banished. Even people that don't know God today don't know what it is to live in banishment from the presence of God. It's so severe, Augustine described it this way. He said, to be lost out of the kingdom of God, to be in exile from the city of God, 
to be alienated from the life of God, to have no share in that great goodness which God has laid up for them that fear Him, has wrought out for them that trust in Him, would be a punishment so great that supposing it to be eternal, no torments that we know of continued through as many ages as man's imagination can conceive could be compared with it we know hell is a horrible place tell you a third thing we know about hell we know hell is eternal we know hell is eternal now this is kind of the last getting off point for a lot of Christians there are a lot of Christians who would accept that hell is real and most Christians (coughs) would even accept that hell is horrible But where a lot of Christians, even people that love the Lord, want to kind of step off the wagon is here at this third major theological truth about hell. Because we just can't rationalize in our mind, from our perspective, an eternal place called hell. I want to show you a verse of scripture in Matthew chapter 25. And again, what I want to read for you here are the words of Jesus. He said, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Did you hear what Jesus did there? He put eternal life and eternal destruction on opposite sides of the seesaw. He drew a parallel between eternity away from God and eternity with God. Here's what that means. To question the reality of an eternal hell is to question the reality of an eternal heaven because Jesus describes them in parallel. Hell's eternal. That means it never ends. But there's one last thing we know about hell. Everybody okay? I know it's been heavy. I've been living with it all week. Here's the last thing I want to tell you about hell. We know hell is not God's desire for anyone. Praise God. God. Amen. Hell is not God's desire for anyone. You say, Pastor, how can you make that statement? I'm so glad you asked me. I'm going to give you three reasons why we know that about hell, and then we're going to be finished. Here's the first reason we know that about hell. We know that because God didn't create hell for people. It's not why God made it. Let me show it to you. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, look on the screen. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his 
angels. If you were here in week one of this series, we talked about the reality of angels and demons and how demons are simply fallen angels and Satan is the leader of that army of fallen angels. He's just a created being, just an angel who chose to rebel against God and choose to de- chose to defy God's authority and Satan and one third of all the angels fell. And the Bible teaches us that God created hell as a place for the devil and his angels. How do I know it's God's desire for him for no person to go to hell? Because God didn't even make hell with people in mind. He made it for the devil and his angels. Let me give you a second reason. We know this because God said so in his word. Let me show it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires, say the next two words out loud, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me show you another one. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Look at it on the screen. The Lord is not <coughs> slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for, say it out loud, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Listen, I know that there are different theological boxes that we find ourselves in this morning, but here's what all of us have to do. We have to lay aside our framework and let the Word of God dictate what we believe. And God said it is His desire that every person be saved. It is His desire that none would perish and that all should come to repentance. And that ought to make every one of us shout glory to God. Amen? It's God's desire that we be saved. So, look at this quote. Ralph Powell said this. If the question be raised, how can a loving God send men to an everlasting hell? It must be replied that God does not choose this destiny for men. They freely choose it for themselves. God simply concurs in their self-chosen way and reveals the full consequences of their evil choice. How do we know it's God's desire for nobody to go to hell? Because that's not why he made it. Number two, because that's not what he said. He said, it's my desire that all be saved. But listen, there's one more reason, and it's better than both of those two put together. Let me tell you the third reason why we know it's not God's desire for anybody to perish. We know this because God sent Jesus to save people from hell. Aren't you thankful for Jesus. Here's what we understand from the Bible. If we all got what we deserved, if we got what we deserve, here's what the Bible tells me. I have sinned against God, me included. When I say all, I mean if we all got what we deserve. I have sinned against God. I have broken God's laws. I have rebelled against God's command. And the righteous, just punishment from God for every one of us is eternity in hell. You want to raise the justice and the fairness question, I'd be real careful 
Because if we all got what we deserve, we would all spend eternity in hell. But God is not just just, God is loving. And he loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ into the world. And Jesus came that you and I could be saved from hell. Listen, that ought to even make a Baptist want to shout, right? That ought to excite us that Jesus came to save us from hell. Let me show it to you. Turn over in your Bible to John chapter 3. I read verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. Here's what that means. Because of Jesus, when I put my faith in Jesus, I will never stand under the judgment of God. I will never stand under the justice of God. Why? Because Jesus took that for me. But look what it goes on to say. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here's the reality. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into the world to rescue us from hell. You say, Pastor, hell is a place of punishment for sin. Yes, it is, but know what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took all of my sin on himself. On the cross, Jesus bore all of the punishment and all the full wrath of God for my sin was poured out on Jesus. Hey, hell is a place of destruction. Yes, it is, but on the cross... Jesus paid the ultimate penalty. And Jesus, as eternal God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sin. You say hell is a place of separation. Oh, it is a place of separation. But Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced all of my hell so that I never have to experience hell. You say... Why did it have to be Jesus? Let me tell you why it had to be Jesus. Because my sin was against an eternal God. And because my sin was against an eternal God, a finite human being could not pay for my sin. I could go to hell for all eternity, and I would never atone for my own sin. Why? Because my sin was against an eternal God. But let me tell you what God did. God took on human flesh. An eternal one became a man. And Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. And he offered that eternal life on the cross. And he took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our punishment and all of our destruction and all of our separation. And he died. But glory to God, he did not stay dead. On Easter Sunday morning, Jesus rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, showing that the Father had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. Now we in Christ can be saved. Let me show it to you in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, all, all that hell is, Jesus experienced 
on the cross. But he defeated it so that you and I can now stand perfectly before the justice bar of God and the love of God and be declared not guilty because our penalty has already been paid. No wonder the songwriter said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'll close with this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. Look what he said. In a nutshell, the gospel is this. Christ took our place, bearing our sin, tasting our judgment, dying our death, so that we might share his place, be made his righteousness, taste his vindication, and experience his life. Hell is a real place. Hell is a horrible place. Hell is an eternal place. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to go there. Because of Jesus, you and I can be saved.